And we'll read these verses responsively. I'll begin the reading in verse 6. We'll read together verses 7 and 9 aloud. I'll read 6 and 8 alone. The Bible says there, And he shall bring forth thy righteousness as the light, and thy judgment as the noonday. Together, verse 7, Rest in the Lord, and wait patiently for him. Fret not thyself because of him who prospereth in his way, because of the man who bringeth wicked devices to pass. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not thyself in any wise to do evil. For evildoers shall be cut off, but those that wait upon the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. This morning I'd like to bring a sermon that's going to both encompass this morning's sermon and tonight's sermon. The title is this, A Workshop on Waiting. A Workshop on Waiting. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask today that you'd help us as we consider this topic that, uh, Lord, I, I don't know that I've heard preached on a lot in, in my uh, years in attending church, but Lord, a topic that is ever so important for us. Lord, something that we uh, need to be reminded of, and that is sometimes you just tell us to wait because it's not quite time. And so, Lord, as we look at the topic, I pray that you'd help us to uh, hold to those things and to do that uh, which is pleasing to you. Be with us now during this time and press these truths on our hearts and help us to make decisions that outlast our time uh, here in church that we take with us as we go. In Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. I remember as a small boy, I was taught that uh, when we pray, uh, God responds in three possible ways. How many of you have heard this before? Yes, no, and everybody together? Wait, right? Wait. Sometimes God says yes, sometimes God says no. Sometimes when we pray, God just says, well, it's not time yet, it's time to wait. I remember um, my years in Bible college. I showed up my freshman year of Bible college. It just fired up and excited and almost wanting to skip the step of of Bible college and just go straight into the ministry. But I knew that uh, I needed the training that they would offer me. I I remember showing up thinking, man, I got all this figured out. Uh, Four years, I'm going to marry a beautiful woman and I'm going to jump straight into a, a, a church as an assistant pastor and and right from there, I'm going to go right into the pastorate, and I had it all laid out, and, and I had my agenda the way I wanted to see things go. Or I had the idea that maybe I would uh, show up my freshman day, and that Mary, the beautiful girl part, that was non-negotiable, that was going to happen, and praise God it did. Uh, but uh, maybe the possibility would be that I'd graduate from college, and I'd go straight into deputation, and then on to the mission field. But I had my idea of the way I wanted to see things go. I remember being wide-eyed and bushy-tailed uh, 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 my senior year, ready to go into the ministry, but no one, no one wanted to interview me. No, there, there were no pastors lining up outside my dorm room saying, hey, you know, we've heard you're something great and we want to sit you down and interview you. Uh, that, just, that just didn't work. I, I knew through my time in college, I knew that God had called me to pastor. But I didn't know all the timeline on that. I just knew that it was going to work out at some point. The only interview I got was from my dad. And it was uh, not to be an assistant pastor, but it was to be a Christian school teacher. And so uh, I looked right, and I looked left, and I saw, well, that would be your left and and your right, right? But I looked, and I saw that there was 
there were no uh, opportunities to be an assistant pastor. And the only ministry opportunity I had that was paid in front of me was to go be a Christian school teacher. And I remember thinking to myself, well, this wasn't what I had in mind, but it's better than working at McDonald's, right? And so I jumped all over the opportunity, and uh, my wife and I, we worked uh, there teaching school. Uh, two years later, I was begging out. I was begging out of teaching school. We have any school teachers in the room today? I'm curious. Anybody in here? School teacher, we got one back here, another one back here. Listen, there is a special place in heaven for you all. Uh, by the time I got done with the second year, you want to know why I'm bald? I was, wasn't bald before I started teaching school, and those kids made me pull uh, all my hair out. And Now it's a test to see whether or not you all are going to make me pull out the rest, amen? Uh, but uh, I, uh, I, it was a struggle. I remember uh, I was given the job, my, well, actually both years, but the second year was more challenging, of teaching seventh grade math, if there is a purgatory. <laughs> my goodness, those seventh graders, they could not sit still. They couldn't help themselves from talking out. And if you get to know me and watch my parenting style at all, I have a very low tolerance for uh, those that don't don't behave the way I expect them to behave. And, you know, at home when they're little, you can control them a little bit better. But when mom and dad let them do whatever they want, then you put all of them together in a classroom. It is enough to drive any sane person insane. And uh, the boys would talk and, you know, they were being boys and sticking pencils up their nose and doing all those things. And the girls were over there. And one day this girl is friends with this girl. And the next day they're enemies. You just can't figure it out. And then on top of that, you got all that going on. And then the girls figured out that uh, uh, as the years, as the year went along, that uh, there was a spirit of animosity that was building up between them and I. And so before class, they were caught uh, uh, getting together and and triangulating how they could try to get me upset in class. That actually happened. And so uh, when the commitments for the following year were passed around, I quickly checked off. No, I will not be teaching next year. And I signed on the dotted line and I. Handed it with authority back to the principal. I will not be doing this again next year. And i got to say, I am thankful for those that God has given the ability to teach. Uh, you have an extra amount of patience that uh, I, I somewhat learned through that process. Amen. Uh, but I knew part of the reason why I was uh, uh, miserable teaching that second year is I knew that that is not what God had called me to do with my life. God had called me to pastor. And so I needed to get into a place where I could be an assistant pastor. And I remember Angela and I, before we'd go to bed each night, we'd get down next to the bed and we'd pray. And, and uh, sometimes we, we would hold each other and pray. And our prayer was, Lord, open the door for us to be in the assistant pastorate position or the pastorate position somewhere. Make that very clear. And through a series of events uh, that took place, and it was a little bit of a tumultuous ride, but ultimately, in just a couple of months' time, God's answer to that prayer was, yes. Yes, I want you to be an assistant pastor, and I'm going to open up the door at Granite Baptist Church in Glen Burnie, Maryland, on the south side of Baltimore, and I'm going to let you serve there as the children's pastor and as the Spanish pastor. And for four years we were there, and then a year in Terryville as an assistant pastor, and then two years as an assistant pastor in Hagerstown, Maryland. And I love it when God's answer to my prayer is, Yes. How many of you like it when God says yes to your prayers, right? Uh, but how about when God says no? You ever pray something and God says no? Uh, without rehashing all the details, uh, if, you come, if you come to church here regularly, you've heard me share uh, different, uh, at different times uh, some of the things that went on. But uh, we uh, ended up out of the church in, in Glen Burnie, Maryland, and up here in Terryville, Connecticut for 
a short time, and God opened a door where uh, for us to go back and to Maryland and work in another church. And the uh, setup there when we first arrived was, okay, you can come here and be an assistant pastor at the church, but we can't pay you anything. So you're going to have to work piecemeal jobs to make it happen. So I was a truck dispatcher for a time, and, uh, and then the, that uh, company kind of closed shop. And so uh, I got a job inspecting homes for the bank uh, that had been foreclosed on. And so I was inspecting 30 to 40 um, uh, houses at a, a day, and I bought a little car. I still have it today. It's a 1997 Honda Accord. I got it with 29,000 miles on it. This would have been less than two years ago. My car now has 98,000 miles on it. So it tells you how much driving I did inspecting those homes. And it was several hundred miles a day I was putting on the car. And, and you were paid by how many houses you did, so you try to knock out as many as you could. I remember I was getting down to the end of the inspecting, and the pastor of the church was getting ready to bring me full-time on staff. And I was inspecting this home and it was everything that Angela and I had been praying for that, that God would give us in, in, a, in a home buy. And, you know, you've been, we've been saving our pennies and things and, 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 and saving up to buy a home. And I remember I'm walking through this house. It's five minutes from the church, maybe three minutes from the church, in a very a comfortable neighborhood. And it was at a rock-bottom price compared to all the other houses around town because it had been foreclosed on. And, and I remember walking through taking pictures and just ooing and aahing at every turn. I had everything Angela wanted in a kitchen. And it was just the perfect home for us. And I remember getting back in the car after I had finished taking all the pictures and filling out all the reports. And I remember praying a prayer and saying, Lord, we would be content to serve as an assistant pastor in this church and to, and to, and to um, buy this home and just be here for however long you want us to be. Years and years and years. And, Lord, would you give us this home? Would you allow us to buy this home? And I went home and I told Angela about it. And She got in the car and we went and parked in front of the house a couple of times. And we prayed over the home. I mean, good night. It even had a basketball hoop in the driveway for Matthew. It was, it was perfect, right? And uh, we, were, we were praying over that. And uh, I, I began to look into buying it and found out that someone else had already uh, uh, closed on the home before we could even move on it. And so God, to that prayer, said, no, no, I don't want you to buy a home here. Uh, if God could have sat down or would have sat down and verbally communicated to me, he probably would have said, listen, you're only going to be here another year, and I'm going to be moving you up to Stratford to pastor. And if you buy a home, you're going to be tied down here, and then you won't want to go. Sometimes God says no when we, when we pray a prayer. You know, through my years of Christian life, I have learned to accept God's no's and be okay with them. I don't always like them, but I've learned to be okay with them. God is good at saying no. He's very good at it. And even when we persist in prayer, sometimes He says no. Um, you ever seen one of those kids where the parents never tell their children no? And then they finally do tell them no, and the kid just pitches an absolute fit? I don't want to be one of those children with God. I want when God says no to me that I say, Okay, Lord, your way is perfect, so I, I trust that. I trust that. But there is one response that God gives me that for my flesh is a struggle. And that's when he says, Wait. Wait. I can take a yes. I love yes. I can handle no. But when God says, wait, that is like when your mom and dad, when you were little, said, maybe. 
You're like, maybe? How many of you give your kids the maybe line? I'm guilty. Matthew will come to me and say, hey, Dad, Dad, uh, can, can we go to Chick-fil-A? They love Chick-fil-A. And I'll say, and I'll look at the calendar, and I'll think, well, yeah, we might have some time. And I'll say, well, well maybe, maybe. Well, maybe yes or maybe no, right? What does that, what does that even mean? What does maybe even mean? And uh, April will ask you, then forget she asked you, and she's just, you know, twirling, with, twirling in the lilies and being a princess. Matthew, if you say maybe, that's the worst thing you could say to him, because he's Mr. Persistent. Ten minutes later, can we go to Chick-fil-A? Ten minutes later, can we go to Chick-fil-A? No, we can't! And then I become good at saying no, right? Uh, but God sometimes says, wait, wait. And wait might mean a future no, wait might mean a future yes, but he says, wait. As a Bible college student, God called me to pastor here in America. I remember my sophomore year, um, my heart was open to the idea of going to the mission field. And I spent some time, uh, the college had a, uh, uh, had a uh, conference they called Missions Emphasis Days. And they brought in a missionary that we support here named Mark Bachman. Mark Bachman's a powerful preacher. I think he reads the Bible through like once a month or something. And he reads it through in English. He reads it through in German. He's extremely intelligent and just in love with Jesus. And, and when he preaches, you just feel the power of God just dripping off the man. But he came in that week and he preached some powerful sermons. And I spent some time that week fasting and praying. And my prayer was, Lord, I am willing to go anywhere you send me. I'll go to the deepest, darkest tribes of India or Africa or China or South America. I'll go wherever it is that you want me to go, but I need you to move in my spirit and tell me. I made sure all the sin in my heart was confessed. I made sure I was right between me and all my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And I sat there and I diligently prayed and I said, Lord, Holy Spirit of God, move in my heart. I'll go to the mission field. And he didn't. And he didn't. The Holy Spirit was silent. The very next year, uh, we had a, uh, a conference where we were emphasizing America. We were preaching, uh, preachers were up preaching about the needs, uh, the spiritual needs of America. The vice president of the college named Bob Hooker, uh, uh, Brother Hooker got up and he preached just a fiery sermon about the immoral condition of America and, and how America is spinning out of control and it's leaving the side of God and how America needs men to stand up and be right themselves, be pure themselves, and preach purity and righteousness to a wayward country. And the Holy Spirit, as silent as He was during the mission's emphasis in, in that day, He spoke and He slammed in my heart. You are, you, that's what I want you to do. I want you to pastor here in the U.S. I want you to stand up and preach and try to guide America back to God. I remember getting down on my knees there at that day and surrendering to God, the pastor. And I, when I got up and I left, I was as sure as I am saved that God had called me uh, into, into the pastorate here in the United States of America. Sometime a couple of Sunday nights ago, I, uh, I shared the story about how that uh, we candidated at a church out in Illinois to pastor back in 2013. We, we looked at and we hoped that we were going to be able to go and pastor that church, but we got a call uh, on a sunny night a couple of weeks after we candidated from the deacon, and the, the deacon on the other end of the phone said, uh, the church has voted for you not to come and pastor us. And I remember thinking to myself, but God, I know you have called me to pastor. And what God was saying to me in that moment was not no. He wasn't saying no, I don't want you to pastor. What he was saying was, it's not time. Wait. 
Wait. I've got more things I need to do in your life and heart to get you ready. Just wait. This morning I'd ask you this. Has, has God told you to wait on something right now? Is there some major thing in your life that just seems like God has just put it on pause? He's hit the pause button. And you're sitting there going, will you hurry up? I've waited long enough. Will you hurry up? Can I ask you this morning, how are you handling that? How are you handling that? Years ago here in New England, there was a preacher by the name of Dr. Philip Brooks. His characteristics were poise and emotional control. But his intimate friends knew that uh, Mr. Phillips uh, uh, oftentimes suffered moments of frustration and irritability. One day a friend saw him pacing the floor like a caged lion. His friend said to him, what's the trouble, Dr. Brooks? I loved Dr. Phillips' reply. He said, the trouble is that I'm in a hurry, but God isn't. I'm in a hurry, but God isn't. Are you in a hurry today and God just isn't in a hurry? And you're thinking, well, God, will you get with the program? I remember my mother told me uh, uh, one of my favorite lines that she's ever said to me. My mother's a very godly woman. My mother said to me uh, in a time where we were just waiting on, we were in a, we were in a, a wait pattern with God. My mother said, Richard, God generally isn't early, but he's always right on time. He's generally not early, but he's always right on time. God waits to the last minute. You say, is he a procrastinator? No. He has all the details worked out. Why does he do that? Because he's trying to test your faith. He's trying to see how strong your faith is. He's trying to improve your faith. This week, as I prayed about what to preach, I began to prepare. I was amazed at just how many verses in the Bible deal with waiting on the Lord. For a topic that doesn't get preached on very much, there's a whole lot in the Bible about it. I have a computer program I use to study with, with a lot of resources and things in it. In the concordance of that program, I put the words wait, and then I put the word Lord. Those two words show up in the, both of those words show up in the same verse 37 times. 37 times. Well, we're told to wait on the Lord. The word wait, this is going to blow you away here, at least it blew me away. The word wait is found in the Bible 149 times. 149 times. Now, I didn't go through and, and, and sort them all out. Some of those instances have, don't have to do with waiting on the Lord, but uh, many of them do. There are other instances where the words patient or patiently or patience show up in the Bible. And this is something that God wants the Christian to become good at. Now, some sermons I preach are evangelistic, meaning that they're salvation-centric. Uh, some sermons I preach, and this would be my favorite topic, would be expository. And that's where you take a passage of the Bible and you let the Bible preach itself, just out of that passage. However, today's sermons, both this morning and this evening's, are going to be topical. We're going to take this topic of waiting on the Lord and we're going to break it down and look at it in great depth and great detail. This morning's sermons, we're going to look at the attributes that should embody the Christian that waits. Tonight's sermon, we're going to look at the actions that should embody the Christian that waits. Tonight, this morning, we're going to look at four attributes. Four attributes that ought to embody you while you wait. Tonight, we'll look at four actions. But let's jump right into attribute number one this morning. We are to wait with 
courage. We are to wait with courage. Now, for the guys in the back uh, doing the slides, I'm going to give, and for those of you taking notes, I'm going to give uh, an attribute, and then I'm going to give an example that will come up on the second slide, and then I'm going to give a result at the very end of the point. And so we'll, give, we'll do that for all eight points today. We are to wait with courage. Turn back in your Bible to Psalm chapter 27. Psalm chapter 27, verse 14. It should only be a couple of pages back to the left there, depending on your Bible there. But Psalm 27 and verse 14, the Bible says, Wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and He shall strengthen thine heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. So, we're to be of good courage, and in our being of good courage, He will strengthen our heart. The example I'd like to give for this is King Saul versus King David. King Saul versus King David. Take your Bibles over to 1 Samuel chapter 13. You'll want to hold your place in Psalm because we'll be all, we'll be in the Psalm for most of the points today. But 1 Samuel chapter 13. While you're turning there, let me kind of lay the backstory for you. The Israelites had come to Samuel and said, we don't want you to lead us anymore. We want a king. We want a king like all the other countries. And that grieved Samuel in his heart, but uh, God said, it's not my perfect will, but it is my permissible will. I will allow them to have a king, and so I want, I'm going to lead a, a young man to you, and you're going to anoint him to be Israel's first king. And so, through a series of events, Saul was brought along Samuel's path, and Samuel anointed Saul, a very humble man at the time, to be the king. Now, Saul was a natural-born warrior. He was stoic. He was stable uh, in a lot of ways. Uh, he was sentimental. But in all that, he was a warrior, a natural-born warrior. And uh, Samuel had told Saul, as they were getting ready to go out and fight the enemies of God, he said, listen, I want you to go to this place that I tell you to go to, and I want you to wait seven days. Wait there seven days, and then I will come to you, and I will perform a sacrifice... And after I have performed the sacrifice, you will lead your men into battle. Look down with me at verse 8. The Bible says, And he, Saul, tarried seven days, according to the set time that Samuel had appointed. But Samuel came not to Gilgal. And the people were scattered from him. Who were these people? These people were his soldiers. And Saul said, Bring hither a burnt offering to me and peace offering. And he offered the burnt offering, and it came to pass that as soon as he had made an end of offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him, that he might salute him. And Samuel said, what hast thou, what, what hast thou done? And Saul said, because I saw that the people were scattered from me, and that thou camest not within the days of pointing, and he sees assigning blame here, and that the Philistines gathered themselves together at Michmash, therefore said I, the Philistines will come down now unto me to Gilgal, and I have not made supplication to the Lord. I forced myself therefore, and offered a burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, thou hast done foolishly. Thou hast not kept the commandment of the Lord thy God, which commanded thee, for now would the Lord have established thy kingdom upon Israel forever. So Samuel, or Saul is sitting there and he's worried. He's worried. He'll say, well, give me some more evidence that Saul was a worrier. You remember uh, when Goliath of Gath came down in the valley and Saul should have been out there leading the charge. He was head and shoulders taller than everyone. He should have been out there fighting a Goliath, but oh, not Saul. Saul was in the tent wringing his hands and what did the people do? Well, they took the per- on the personality of their leader. They began to wring their hands as well. And every time Goliath would come in the valley and he would black 
blasphemed God. Where did all the men run? They went and they hid in the caves and behind rocks and, and trees and they were scared out of their mind. Why? Because like uh, churches do with the pastor over time, the people had taken on the personality of their leader. And here Saul was a worrier. Saul had gathered his men at Gilgal where he was supposed to be. He had waited the seven days, but he did not do it with courage. He did not wait with courage. In fact, he waited with worry. How would have a man in Saul's shoes led with courage? Well, he would have had the men up at a very early time every morning, would have been putting them through drills. Would have been preparing them, not only physically, but mentally. Not only physically and mentally, but emotionally. But not Saul. No, Saul woke up and wrung his hands and worried and complained about what may or may not happen and got up and anxiously looked out over the hill to see if Samuel was coming. But Samuel was not coming. And so those men took on his personality. The seventh day came. Couldn't have come any sooner for Saul. The enemy was beginning to gather on the other side of the, of the dale there. Saul waited in the morning. No Samuel. In the afternoon, no Samuel. And then Saul, in his impatience, and in his disheartedness, in his lack of courage, disobeyed God. He performed the burnt offering and the peace offering, which was not for him to do because he was not a priest. Samuel showed up and said, God has ripped the kingdom out of your hands, out of your lineage, because you could not wait. This morning I would tell you that if you have been put on hold by God, if God has hit the pause button in some area of your life, if you are waiting on God, I would say this, wait, but wait with courage. Back in Psalm chapter 27, verse 14, we find Israel's second king, who writes and he says, wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen thine heart. Now, we're going to look at some indiscretions in, in David's life, both this morning and this evening, but let me just say this, is that all in all, if you look at David's life versus Saul's life, David knew how to wait, and Saul did not. David knew how to wait with Courage. Saul waited with no courage. And this morning, the result is this, and that would be that next slide. God will strengthen thine heart. Right out of Psalm 27, 14. Be of good courage, and he shall strengthen thine heart. Some of you here today may be wringing your hands while you wait on God to come through. And I would tell you this. As far as attributes go with waiting, don't wait and worry. Wait and have courage. And let God strengthen your heart. Let God provide that energy in your heart that you need. So we see number one, attribute number one, we are to wait with courage. Attribute number two, we are to wait with patience. We are to wait with patience. Go back to our, our, our main text this morning, Psalm chapter 27 and verse 14. where we, uh, I, I, I'm sorry, rather Psalm chapter 37 and verse 7 where we began this morning. And we see that uh, David, the psalmist here, tells us another attribute of how we're to wait. It says there in verse 7, Rest in the Lord and wait. Everybody read that next word out loud together with me. Patiently. Together. And wait patiently for him. Fret not thyself because of him uh, who prospereth in his way, because of the man who bringeth wicked devices to pass. We're to wait patiently. Take your Bibles. Again, hold your place in Psalm. Take your Bibles over to Second Kings chapter 6. For the example here today, we're going to look at uh, king, the king of Samaria versus Elisha. The king of Samaria versus Elisha. And again, I'll set the back 
uh, give you the backstory here while you're finding your way over to 2 Kings chapter 6. Back in Bible times, the main uh, uh, line of defense against an enemy was... And there was a wall that was built around a city, and that had... Both pros and cons. The pro of having a wall around a city, obviously there were no airplanes to come in and bomb you, so they didn't have to worry about that. But the, the pro of having a wall around the city is it kept your enemies from coming in. There were two or three gates to the city, depending on the size, sometimes more, but two or three gates to the city, and, and you could, you could maintain who went in and came out of your city. You could keep the bad people out of your city. But the con with a walled city is that an army could surround it and could cut off the food supply. That's what had happened here with the city of Samaria. The Syrians had come and had surrounded the city. They had cut off anybody who was bringing in food. And now the price of food began to skyrocket. Began to skyrocket. The Bible talks about in 2 Kings 6 that dove's dung went for a whole lot of money. They were selling the head of a donkey. How much meat can you get off the head of a donkey? That's how hungry people were. But those instances don't really tell how bad it was. You see, the king, I'll give him credit on this front, Elisha had been counseling him. Elisha was God's prophet. And Elisha had been saying, God says, wait, wait, wait. And the king was growing impatient. The king was waiting, but he was waiting impatiently, not with patience. One day the king went walking around the wall of the city. A lot of times the walls were so wide, houses were built on top of the walls. So the king was taking a stroll around the wall of the city, and a woman grabbed him and said, King, I need your help. And she was really upset. The king said, What's the matter? And she said, Well, I made an agreement with uh, this other lady. that, uh, And yesterday, the agreement was that we would eat her baby one day, and we would eat my baby the next. How bad off does it have to be where you're willing to take your own child for food. That's how bad it had gotten. And the lady said, yesterday we ate my child. Today I came to her and said, it's your turn to give up your baby. And she's hidden her baby. And the king did not answer the woman. Instead, the king turned his frustration toward God and God's man. Look down with me at verse 30 of 2 Kings chapter 6. The Bible says, And it came to pass, when the king heard the words of the woman, that he rent his clothes, and he passed by upon the wall, and the people looked, and behold, he had sackcloth within upon his flesh. Then he said, God do so, watch how angry he is. Look at his impatience here. God do so more and also to me if the head of Elisha, that's God's man, if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, shall stand on him this day. But Elisha sat in his house, and the elders sat with him. And the king sent a man from before him, but ere the messenger came to him, he said to the elders, this is Elijah, Elisha is speaking to the people in his house, he says, See you how this son of a murderer, speaking of the king, hath sent to take away mine head. Look when the messenger cometh, shut the door and hold him fast at the door. Is not the sound of his master's feet behind him. So uh, Elisha uh, says to those in his house, he says, there's going to be, uh, 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 the king's going to send a man here to kill me. So lock the door, keep him out. And right behind the messenger is going to be the king. Look at verse 33. And while he yet 
talked with them, behold, the messenger came down unto him and said, Behold, this evil is of the Lord. Yelling, yelling, probably yelling through the door here. Behold, this evil is of the Lord. What shall I wait for the Lord any longer? Why should I have any more patience to wait for your God to do anything? I've got women eating their children out here. I have no more patience. Look at verse 1 of chapter 7. Then Elisha said, Hear ye the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord, Tomorrow about this time shall a measure of fine flour be sold for a shekel, and two measures of barley for a shekel in the gate of Samaria. Then, then a lord on whose hand the king leaned answered the man of God and said, Behold, if the Lord would make windows in heaven, might this thing be? Notice Elisha's response. And he said, Behold, thou shalt see it, speaking to the king, thou shalt see it with thine eyes, but shalt not eat thereof. The rest of the story is this. Uh, the, uh, the, the, the very next day there were four lepers sitting in a leper, leper colony outside of town. Obviously, weren't allowed to be in the town. Many of you know the story, but I'll give it briefly. And they're sitting there, and their food supply had been cut off also. Usually, the way things worked is, uh, inside of Samaria, there were people who cared for the lepers, and they would take of the abundance of their food out to the leper colony and leave it there. And after they went back in, the lepers would come out and get the food, and they'd dis- uh, disperse it amongst themselves, and they would eat. But because the food supply had been cut off in Samaria, their food supply had been cut off as well. And they're sitting there, and they're starving, like everyone else in the city. They're thinking to themselves, we can either sit here and die, or we can throw ourselves at the, at the mercy of the Assyrians, we can ask them to feed us. What's the worst thing that could happen? They could kill us, but we're going to die anyway. We're lepers, and we're starving. So the four men got up, and they went to where the Syrian army had been. And God had sent a strange noise, the sound of an army, and had spooked the Syrian army. And it spooked them so bad that they got up and they left without packing their things. And all their belongings and all of their food laid there. And those lepers men are sitting there and they're chowing down on turkey legs. And they got a, a, a roll in this stand. They got mashed potatoes over here. They got a, a steak that had been on the grill over there. Maybe a little charred, maybe a little well done. But it was sitting there and they're just su- uh, stuffing their faces. And they're going crazy eating. And one of them with turkey between his teeth looks over at his buddies who are just chowing down and he says this, he says, we do not well. We're eating while our brethren are starving. They don't know that the Syrian army's gone. And so those men went and they told someone uh, that watched the gate, hey, listen, the Syrian army's gone. All the food's out here. We just ate and we're stuck. How many of you seen that golden crowd that's getting ready to open up? It was like a golden crowd over there, right? They're just chowing down. How many of you are determined to be the first customer in the door? Ernie's got his hand up in the back. You're going to have to compete with that over here. Uh, but uh, it was golden crowd for them. And so, sure enough, they sent some people out there to check. They were skeptical. And sure enough, the Syrian army was gone. All the food was there. And then word came back and got into the city. And it was like the old school days on Black Friday where they opened the door and people come pouring in the doors. They opened the gate to go out. And the king was first in line because he had, it was king me first, you know. And he's first in line. And the people were so starving to get to that food that they trampled over the king. And just like Elisha had prophesied, you will see it, but you will not partake of it. And they trampled over the king and they killed him. It was a mob that ran over their own king and killed him to get to the food. Why? Because the king could not be patient in his waiting. 
Psalm chapter 37, where we were a moment ago, verses 7, and, and let's read down through verse 9. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Uh, skip, uh, rather, skip down to verse 8. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not thyself in any wise to do evil. Verse 9, for evildoers shall be cut off. Evildoers shall be cut off. But those that wait on the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. What is the result if we wait with patience? Well, pun- the, the evildoers will be punished. The inheritance of the earth. The backstory of Psalm 37, David is saying, listen, you don't need to fret over those who are evil and are seemingly getting away with it and having great abundance. God's going to punish them in his time. You have to be patient in that. So what is the result of waiting with patience? Well, God in his time will punish those who are evildoers and we will get to inherit the earth. Attributes of waiting. We looked at waiting with courage. We've looked at waiting with patience. Number three, notice we are to wait with hope. We are to wait with hope. Go with me to Psalm chapter 39 and verse 7. Psalm chapter 39, we're in 37. Just turn over a page or so there. Psalm 39 and verse 7. The sermon kind of takes a turn in a little bit different direction here. Structure is the same, but sort of the message is a little bit different. Look at verse 7. The Bible says there, And now, Lord, what wait I for? My hope is in Thee. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Make me not the reproach of the foolish. Psalm Psalm chapters 38 and 39 were written by David in a time where he had done wrong, and he was under the chastening hand of God. God was punishing David. David wrote these psalms during that time. Now, those who are biblical theologians and study out all the history of the psalms debate on whether or not this was after David had numbered the people, or whether David uh, this was the time that David had committed the adultery with Bathsheba and then the murder of Uriah. In either case, we see that David was calling out and saying, I'm waiting for you to punish me, and my hope is in thee. My hope is in thee. The story of David numbering the people, David in the latter time of his being king. God had made it clear to David, you are not to take a census of your people. You're not to count how many people are in your kingdom. God knew that if David had done that, he'd be lifted up in pride. God hates pride in our hearts. Joab was David's general. Joab was not a godly man. But even Joab knew David numbering the people was a bad idea. David ordered Joab to do it, and Joab gave him some pushback, and David put his fist down and said, go number the people. So so Joab did a very haphazard job. The number was reported back to David, and sure enough, David was lifted up in pride. God sent a prophet, a prophet named Gad. Just like Nathan, Gad put his bony finger in David's face, and he said, you're wrong. You're wrong in what you've done. You have disobeyed your God. And Gad gave David some options on how he could be punished. One of them was to have an army come in and create great devastation to Israel. One was to allow a pestilence to come in, a a, a disease of sorts, and afflict the people. And one was to allow God himself to send an angel down and kill Israelites because of David's sin. David says in 1 Chronicles chapter 21, 13, the Bible says this. It says, David said unto Gad, I am in a great strait. Let me fall now into the hand of the Lord. For very great are his mercies. Let me not fall into the hand of man. 
David said this, he said, I am waiting for God to punish me. And I'm going to choose to fall into the hands of God because I know His character. I know He's a God of mercy. I remember as a boy, when I was really little, mom would spank me and it would hurt. Got to be seven, eight, nine, ten years old. Mom's spankings didn't really make me cry much anymore. But dad's did. In fact, the last spanking I got, I think I was like 16 and I cried because my dad's huge and it hurt. <laughs> um, so when I was seven or eight, nine years old, yeah, it, it, hurt, it hurt even more then. And, and I deserved every spanking I got and plenty more that I didn't get. Um, but I can remember uh, when my mom would say to me in the middle of the afternoon after I you know, beat my brother up or something, she'd say, go to your room and wait for your father. Oh, I hated those words. Oh, I hated those words. And then there was this waiting time, you know, where you're sitting in your room for probably an hour and a half, but it feels like, you know, two days. And you're waiting on Dad to get home. And I loved when my dad came home. I had a good relationship with my dad. You know, we'd go out in the parking lot or go out in the driveway and play basketball together, throw the football, baseball around the yard. Had a great relationship with my dad. He'd take me out uh, to cut grass, cut lawns, and, and, you know, all those things. And we uh, we did a lot of things together. But when I was in trouble, I, I didn't like when Dad came home. I just didn't enjoy that. Waiting on him. David, in the same sense, is waiting on God to lower the boom on him for what he did that was wrong. I'm here today to tell you that if you're living in sin, God, in his time, will find a way to punish you. And it might be public, but it might be private. David said this, he said, while I'm waiting on God to punish me, my hope is in the Lord. It's in the Lord. What comes, what is the result when we wait on the Lord with hope? Well, the result I have here is you can put uh, the illustration up uh, or the, uh, the illustration up or the example up and then go ahead and put the next one up as well. Our result is deliverance from personal transgression. There has to come a point in time when we do wrong where we accept personal responsibility. Listen, sir, if you're struggling with uh, fidelity in your marriage, it is not your wife's fault. It's not your wife's fault. You can't control what she does, but you can control what you do. Ma'am, if you're struggling with, uh, with, with uh, uh, something in your home, maybe your husband hasn't been faithful to you, you can't control your husband's actions, but you can control your own. You can control what you do. Some of you here today might be uh, struggling with things, and the natural tendency is to point the finger at the way you were raised, or point the finger at this, or point the finger at that person, or this situation. I'm a product of my circumstances. The best thing you could do is accept personal responsibility, confess that to the Lord, accept whatever punishment He gives you, and allow Him to deliver you from personal transgressions. But that comes from waiting, waiting with hope, waiting with hope. Let me say here as well is that while you're waiting for God to come through for you in a particular situation, I don't know why you're waiting today. There are a hundred reasons why you, could, why you feel that God has hit the pause button in your life. Maybe you um, need a home to live in. Maybe you uh, are out of employment. Uh, maybe you're trying to have a child and God's not opened up uh, the womb yet there. There, there are, there are uh, as, many, uh, as many people as there are in here today, there are that many reasons why you might be waiting on God. But I'd say this, don't lose hope. Don't lose hope. You have a God who can. You have a God who can, but He needs our faith and He needs us to hope in Him. Number four, attribute number four, we see we are to wait with anticipation. 
We are to wait with anticipation. Take your Bibles over to Isaiah chapter 25 with me and verse 9. Isaiah 25, 9. So we've seen where to wait with courage, where to wait with patience, where to wait with hope, but where to wait with anticipation. Now, the book of Isaiah is a fascinating book. Uh, oftentimes when you're doing your Bible reading, you get into some of the, the prophetic books, and, and if you don't really take the time to study them and understand them, if you're just surface reading them, they may come across as less exciting as some of the other books of the Bible. But let me tell you, if there's a book to dive into and really enjoy, boy, the book of Isaiah is just chucked full with prophecy about the first coming of, of Jesus and His birth on earth and all of the, all, all, not all, but a lot of the prophecies that you find in the Old Testament about the birth of Jesus come from the book of Isaiah, and Jesus Christ would come and be the salvation for his people. Look at verse 9 of Isaiah 25, it says, And it, and it shall be said in that day, Lo, this is our God, we have waited for him, and he will save us. This is the Lord, we have waited for him, we will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Ever since Adam and Eve committed those first sins uh, by humanity in the Garden of Eden, God told Eve that you're going to have a child, and that child, uh, uh, through, through your seed, you're going to birth that which will be your Savior. All throughout the Bible, you see in every book of the Old Testament, what you find is that each book points to the Messiah. The Hebrew word is Messiah. The Greek word in the New Testament is the word Christ. They're the same word translated from one language to the other. And so in the Old Testament, he's called the Messiah. In the New Testament, he's called the Christ. And they didn't know how this Messiah would come. But as we so often illustrate here, uh, you have the cross and Jesus uh, would come. The Christ, the Messiah would come and die on the cross. But in the Old Testament, they didn't know it was going to be a cross. They just knew there was going to be a, the Messiah was going to come and he was going to save them from their sins. He was going to be that lamb on the altar that would be their sacrifice for them. And, and they looked forward to the day that would come. They waited for the day. Generation after generation after generation wondered when that Messiah would be born. Here we are on the other side and we have the Bible to see that it was uh, Jesus Christ. And we have the particulars that He died on the cross and that He rose again from the dead. But uh, uh, they we don't anticipate this coming. We anticipate the second coming or the rapture of Christ. More about that in a minute. Back over here, they were anticipating the salvation or that man who would come, the Lamb of God that would come, the Messiah who would come and be their salvation. Turn with me for the illustration here, the example. We look at Simeon and Anna. Turn with me over to Luke chapter 2 and verse 25. We're done over in that part of the Bible. You can let that go. Luke chapter 2 and verse 25. The backstory here is that Mary and Joseph had traveled to Bethlehem just as the Old Testament had predicted they would. And uh, Mary had birthed Jesus Christ there in that stable as we talk about around uh, uh, December was where we celebrate the birth of our Savior. And he had been born and as was custom there, there had to be a time of purification of a woman as, uh, as, as, as all the things that go on with birth. She had to get back to a normal state of womanhood before she could be allowed to enter into the temple. And so her days of purification had passed. <clears throat> Excuse me. And uh, they took Jesus to the temple to offer up a burnt offering, which was also custom after a child was born, in, cel- in celebration of the birth of Jesus. Mary and Joseph are poor. They don't have any money. They were so poor they couldn't even bring the normal burnt offering. They had to bring, I believe it was pigeon doves off the top of my head. I might not be right about that, but uh, some small offering. 
And they, they come up and they're heading into the temple, trying to be anonymous. They're not announcing to everybody, hey, we got the Christ child. He was born of my virgin wife. That wasn't announced. They're just anonymously trying to slip in the temple and slip out. There was a man who served in the temple named Simeon. Simeon had been promised by God that he would get to see the Messiah with his own eyes. Look at verse 25 of Luke chapter 2. And Behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And the same man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, or the Messiah, and the Holy Ghost was upon him. That Simeon, that Simeon, got to hold the Messiah in his arms. And as you read down the Christ in his arms, he would say, Father, I can go on home to heaven because now I have seen him with my own eyes. They leave Simeon and Anna is there. Anna was a woman filled with the Spirit of God. And Anna as well came up and approached them. And she got to hold the Christ child as an old lady. And the same story as Simeon. She was so excited about what God had done in bringing that salvation into their arms so they could personally get to hold the Messiah. They looked forward to salvation. Can I say today that we don't look forward to the saving act or the act of the cross, we look back at it. But if I could just kind of take the sermon and spin it on its head for a moment. You know, you and I aren't the only ones that have to wait. We wait and wait and wait on God at times, but you know that God waits on us. You might be here today and you do not know for sure that you would go to heaven when you die. The truth is, any of us could get in our car today and on our way home, be hit by some car running a red light, and we could die on the spot. I say, oh, that won't happen to me. It probably won't, but it could. It could. Your life could end today. You could uh, start feeling sick this next week and go see a doctor and on an oncologist and find out that you've got uh, late-term cancer and be dead in a week. could happen to any of us. The healthiest person here today Healthiest feeling, healthiest feeling person here today could be dead in a week from sickness. My question to you is this. When you die, how certain are you you'll go to heaven? You say, well, I, I know I'm going to heaven. Well, I, I hope you do. The Bible says we can know in 1 John 5. But do you know that because of who you are and what you're doing? Or do you know that because of what Jesus did on the cross for you? see, a lot of people think that they're going to get into heaven because they're special, they're well-behaved, they're a good neighbor, they're better than most of society. And I'm going to tell you, my friend, God's standard for getting into heaven is not your neighbor. God's standard for getting into heaven is His perfection. You and I fall short because of our sin. The truth is this, sin separates us from God separates us from God. God cannot let us into heaven in our sinful state because if he were to allow you and I into heaven the way we are, we would corrupt heaven. Heaven would no longer be perfect. So the Bible tells us in Romans 6 that the wages of sin is death. What's that mean? That means the paycheck of sin is death. We live our whole life sending our sins up to heaven, sending our sins up to God. God records them all down in a book. And one day we're going to stand in front of God and He is going to hand us a paycheck in return for all of those sins. And that paycheck is going to read four letters, H 
H-E-L-L. Because that's where we deserve to go for our sin. You say, Pastor, that's not politically correct preaching. It might not be, but it's biblical preaching. The Bible tells us in Revelation chapter 21 and verse 8, and all, all unbelievers and a whole long list of people, murderers and adulterers and, 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 and sorcerers, and it says this, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone. This is the second death, or the death of the soul. And one day when your flesh dies, that soul of yours will either go to heaven or it will go to hell. And if you die in your sinful state, my friend, you're going to split hell wide open. But God is good and gracious. God wants to redeem you from your sin. He wants to wash your sins away. You say, how do I get that to happen to me? Well, Jesus Christ, that Messiah, as was promised in Isaiah, just we read a few moments ago, that was held by Simeon and Anna. He would grow up to be, he, he was born the man, Lamb of God. He was born perfect. He would grow up to be that sacrifice. You see, Jesus never committed one sin because he was God. He couldn't sin. I can't die in your place. I can't go through your hell for you because I'm a sinner. But God can. Jesus can. When Jesus hung on the cross, the Bible tells us in the book of Galatians that he that knew no sin became our sin so that we could become the righteousness of God in him. In essence, God wants to trade with you. He took your sin on you and he wants to lay his righteousness on on, on your record in heaven. God is recording your sins. And if you'll simply believe in Jesus that he came, he lived, he died, he rose again from the dead for you. And you'll put your faith and trust in that. You'll call on him. God will take the righteousness of Jesus and he'll slap it down over all those sins that you've committed. And when God looks down at your name, he will no longer see your sins. Rather, he'll see the righteousness of his son because Jesus Christ took away your sin when he became them on the cross. My friend, there has to come a point in time in your life where you look up to God and on your eternal behalf you say, God, I am a sinner deserving of hell. And I believe that you came and you lived and you died for me. And I accept your sacrifice as my salvation. My friend, if a drunk driver or someone runs a red light and hits me today, I have no doubt in my mind I will wake up in the presence of God. Not because of what I'm doing, but because of what Jesus did for me on the cross. And I have put my faith and trust in that. Earlier I mentioned that God waits. You know that God has been waiting with you, waiting for you with courage. God has been waiting for you with patience. God has been waiting for you with hope. God has been waiting for you with anticipation that you're going to call on His name. Don't delay it any longer. There's one of you here today sitting in our midst. You've not yet called on the name of the Lord and asked Him to give you that salvation. The Bible says this, Behold, now is the accepted time. Now. Listen, there's things we wait for. Salvation isn't one of them. It's available right now. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, today is the day of salvation. In a few moments, I'm going to close the sermon. We're going to have an invitation. We're going to have an altar call. People are going to come and they're going to kneel. They're going to make decisions for the Lord right here at the front of the service. We'll have an assistant pastor standing right down here front. You can walk down here with those other people. You can take him by the hand and we'll have a man show a man and a woman show a woman how to know for sure you're going to heaven. Do not walk out of this building today without knowing that. Don't make that mistake. Get it nailed down for sure. For those of you here today who are saved, can I say this? We are to wait with anticipation. God 
God one day is going to tell his son, he's going to say, boy, he's going to say, son, it's time. Jesus is, he's, he's fired up and ready to go. You remember when you're a boy and, or, or a young lady, young, young man, young lady, and you're, you're, you're excited about going somewhere, maybe on a vacation, and you know, it seems like it takes dad forever to park, pack the car. You're like, oh, can we leave already? I'm ready. And, and, and you're just waiting and waiting and waiting. Dad, what time are we leaving? Dad, what time are we leaving? Dad, what time are we leaving? Well, it, soon enough, soon enough. And finally, dad says, it's time to go. Go get in the car. Woohoo! We're going! We're going to the beach or we're going wherever, right? One day God's going to tell Jesus, he's going to say, it's time. Jesus is just itching. He's waiting. He's ready. God the Father is going to tell God the Son, go on down there and get him. And Jesus Christ is going to come down into the clouds. And the trumpet's going to sound. And all of us, the Bible says, that have put our faith and trust in Christ, we're going to be caught up out of here. We're going to be caught up out of here. How many believe that Jesus Christ could come back today? Can I see your hand? How many really believe he's going to come back today? You really believe that? If, if you knew for certain that he was coming back today, what would you change about the rest of your schedule for today? What would you do different? You see, every action we give the Lord tells him, either I am anticipating you're coming or I'm not. We're waiting for the day that we rule and reign with Christ forever. But are you waiting with anticipation? Or are you too busy and distracted with all of what life has going on for you? It's time to be single-minded toward that, those things that are important. Attributes of a Christian that waits. We are to wait with courage. We are to wait with patience. We are to wait with hope. And lastly, we are to wait with anticipation. Let's have our heads bowed and our eyes closed this morning. Sometimes God says yes. Sometimes he says no. Sometimes God says to wait. He says to wait. It's just not time yet. What do you...